This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. So, the other day, I'm on Facebook, and I noticed something a little odd. In the recommended friends area, there was a recommendation for someone that I do know, but I can't, to this moment, actually, figure out how Facebook knows that I know. My next-door neighbor from an apartment that I lived in four years ago. That's two apartments ago. I was glad to friend my old neighbor, as they say, but really, how did Facebook know that? I may never be able to solve that particular mystery, but today on Fordham Conversations, we're looking at one of the big ways that businesses, the government, the military, nonprofit organizations, and others do know so much about you. Data mining. Chances are you've heard that term before with reference to the Total Information Awareness Government Surveillance Program, or to identity theft, or perhaps more innocently, with reference to marketing practices like Amazon and Netflix recommendations. My guest this morning to talk about data mining is Gary Weiss. Weiss is an assistant professor of computer and information sciences at Fordham. He joined me in the studio last week to explain what data mining actually is, how it's used, and why it's becoming more and more important. Later this morning on the show, we'll take a look at how the idea of reputation is being affected by the internet. But first, Gary Weiss. Gary Weiss, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Now, first, just on the most basic level, what do you mean when you use the phrase data mining? Well, basically, data mining is pretty simple. You have data, and you want to get knowledge or useful information out of it. So data mining is the process of taking that data and getting useful information or knowledge from it. Um, it includes methods like statistical methods, but it also includes more modern methods that are based on computer science and computer algorithms. Why is this something that we have been hearing about a lot more in the last few years? Has something changed in the technology? Uh, certainly. Um, as everyone knows, computers have been getting faster. So some of these algorithms that would have been impossible to run 20 years ago, or maybe even 10 years ago, we can now run. Uh, but in addition, it's not just the fact that the computers are faster, but disk space and storage is so much cheaper. Because to do data mining, you need a lot of data. And as most people know, we're generating data um, at enormous rates. And just by surfing the web, you can see all of the data that's out there. Pretty much everything that you do um, is recorded in some way or another. Every um, retail purchase you make, it's recorded, it's stored in a database, um, and it's kept at least for, for years. Every web page that you visit on the web, there's a record of that. Every phone call you make, while the contents of the phone call hopefully are not recorded, the fact that you made the call, who you made it to, uh, the duration, and things like that, those are all recorded and kept and are available for data mining. What is data mining used for, typically? Probably the primary driver right now are businesses who want to increase their their effectiveness and their profit. So there's a lot of different um, business applications. Amazon, which you mentioned before, and Netflix, they both want to give you recommendations. By giving you re good recommendations, you know they're more likely to retain their customers and they're providing a service to you which makes them a little bit more sticky. You're not going to just go to another provider. So providing those recommendations, it's based on your past um, history, what you've ordered, what you've liked, if they have that review information. In addition, it's also based on what other users who are similar to you have liked. Where in our everyday lives are we most likely to run into data mining? Well, Netflix is certainly one place, um, and so is Amazon. And you know they provide recommendations which are useful to their customers. 
and it also helps them retain their customers. And it's kind of interesting that you mentioned Netflix because they've had one of the most widely publicized contests for data mining. So in 2006, they announced a $1 million prize, which certainly gets a lot of attention from researchers, to anyone who could improve their recommendation accuracy by 10%. Originally, people thought perhaps that wasn't possible, but there was steady progress over the last three years. And in fact, right now, there are two um, organizations or groups of researchers who have submitted uh, results which exceed the 10%. And we still don't know who's going to win because they're so close. And um, apparently, one group submitted it first, but according to the rules, there's a 30-day window where someone can try and beat that, and another team beat that, and then the original team submitted something with like basically one day left, and then actually with minutes left in that one-month period, that other team um, who submitted the second results submitted something that may have beaten the original team. So up until now, we've been talking about using data mining to sort of to sell things and to keep customers happy. But you also worked on a project that used data mining to identify um, money launderers. Tell me about that. The customer in this case was a bank. And by law, they have to um, respond to government requests. If the government gives them the name of an individual for whatever reason, they have to come back with whether that customer, whether that name matches one of their customers. And while this sounds very easy, um, it's not, because very often names are misspelled, birth dates are misspelled, or often you know there may be abbreviations. So John could be J-O-N, but maybe the full name is Jonathan. So in this case, we needed to do two things. The first thing had nothing to do with data mining. We had to come up with some rules. For example, John, J-O-N, and J-O-H-N may be near matches. So we'd give it a score based on that. But then the second phase, which would involve data mining and machine learning, is if you have all of these factors, how well the first name matches, last name matches, birth date, um, where they live, their phone numbers. How do you combine all of these together? What the company or what the bank had done previously is they just added those scores together. But with data mining and machine learning, you can build a predictive model that looks at all these factors and figures out what's the best weights and what are the best ways to combine those factors. And this is an example of supervised learning. So to do something like this, you need to give it the answers so it can learn. So you would give it examples. These are good matches, these are bad matches. And from that, it would basically learn a function that matches the input, in this case, a name and some other identifying information into whether it's a match or not. I know this isn't what you did, but how would that data be used to determine who's a money launderer? Well, in this case, it was the government who came up with a list of suspicious individuals. So they just provide it to the bank, and the bank really just needs to respond with those people who may match those identities. So really, in this case, what I did was help with identity matching, which is a pretty common problem. So if somebody has like a number of accounts or just if they have an account? If they have a number of accounts or if they have an account, but again, names may not match exactly, birth dates, some information may be incomplete. And this occurs in in other contexts. Um, I worked for a telecommunication company for many years, and the same problem happened. Um, They didn't always know whether two different customers were the same customer or not. And that might sound silly. You might think it may be very easy to identify a customer, but if you realize that some of these big corporations 
basically buy and sell other companies. They may have different ways of identifying customers. Names may not match exactly. IBM could be IBM or it could be international business machines. So it's not always very easy even to identify whether your customers are the same customer or different customers. As someone who works on this, do you feel like there are privacy issues involved in this kind of use of information about people? Well, there's certainly privacy issues. Um, there's really two problems. One is, is the data private and what happens when you put all the data together and you do data mining? Um, and there's really both issues. So one of the problems we have with our society is there's just so much data out there. Um, and some of it is publicly available and some isn't very easily accessible, but maybe with a little bit of work. Um, again, as I mentioned before, everything is recorded. So at least the businesses that you interact with, they're going to know, you know what you've bought from them. If it's an online store, they know what web pages you visited. So even if you thought about buying something but didn't, they're going to know that. In a traditional brick-and-mortar store, they don't know that. They know if you bought something, but they don't know what you've browsed or what you haven't browsed. So all of this information is there, and today it's in electronic form, and due to the um, advances in computer technology, um, this can actually be stored online now. So there's certainly privacy issues that these things can be released. And sometimes it happens accidentally or maliciously. There was an example where some AOL employee released 20 million, 21 million search queries. Now, it didn't have any specific identifying information. It just had the queries. But if you look through the queries carefully enough, in most cases, you can identify the person, or in some of the cases, who actually made those queries. Because if the person searched on, let's say, their high school or whatever school, what college they went to, their friends, maybe they even used the search engine to find their own web page. These are all clues that can be used to identify the person. And in this case, and in some of the articles that were published, you know, it's particularly embarrassing because those queries went along with other queries that I'm sure the person would not want to be made public, like, how do I get revenge on my ex-girlfriend? That was one sample query. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking this morning on the show with Gary Weiss. Weiss is an assistant professor of computer and information sciences at Fordham, and we are talking about data mining. Later this morning on the show, we'll take a look at the internet and reputation with author Daniel Solov. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Gary Weiss. This is not in any way illegal or not on the up and up. But one thing that I know a lot of people find troubling is the gathering of this information and the buying and selling of it in order to, to do target marketing. What are the concerns with that? Certainly the information becomes more powerful the more information you have. So when you aggregate this information, you know, that can be particularly troubling because they can build a profile on you by using all this information and can do very specific you know, targeted ads based on that. So some of this is okay and some of it isn't. Um, many companies have policies of not selling or sharing the information. Um, I recently looked at Google's policy, and they have a lot of information about you, probably more so than almost any company, because they know every website that you've been to if you use their search engine. Um, and if you use Gmail, they, in theory, know all about your email. So I've looked a little bit more closely at their privacy policy about the email, and they basically say they will not personally read your email, 
and they certainly will not share the contents, but there is a computer program that is reading every single email message you receive, and based on it, it's going to figure out what are the best ads targeted towards you. So if you have a lot of emails about baseball, you probably will start seeing baseball ads. So again, it's just a computer that's doing this, and most people apparently are not troubled by this, but some are. And, you know, it's certainly worse with the advances in technology because Gmail basically says, if you use our service, we give you so much space, you never have to delete an email. Well, that means they have essentially, you know, decades potentially worth of, of information on you, at least as time goes by. So Google doesn't sell your information to other companies who would use it to sell you stuff, but they do use it to determine what kind of stuff they're going to post on your on the top of your email. Right. And that's probably not too disturbing to some people, but some people still find that an invasion. However, we should all remember that the government occasionally asked for some of this information. And not too long ago, they wanted some sample queries from all of the major search engines because they just wanted to know what queries, especially um, about pornographic content, how prevalent they were. If they're very prevalent, then maybe, you know, children involved. And some of the companies responded and some didn't. Some fought it. So although this is private, sometimes some of that may be shared. There are other companies that also try to do the right thing. One of the areas that is very hot now is social networking. And some of those companies try or have tried to release anonymized data to researchers so researchers can make advances, which can help those sites and, in fact, help society. But one of the things we found out is it's almost impossible to perfectly anonymize data. Um, you can certainly get rid of names and things like that, but you know, if you think about social network sites, there's a structure. Um, one person may have 10 friends. One person may have 20 friends. But what if it's a small site and only one person in that site has exactly 21 friends? Then you would know um, who that person is. You could uniquely identify them. I want to ask you why we should care about this, why we should worry, and why we shouldn't worry. Because my inclination is to worry. So ease my mind. Well, you should care about it because it affects your daily life, and it will continue to do so and probably increase pretty much everything you do that's recorded electronically, which is most of the things you do, um, you know, is available in theory for, for people to data mine if they can get the data. Um, that can be a bad thing. That can be a good thing. In many cases, you know, it's a service to you. If you go to Amazon and it gives you good recommendations or you receive an email from Amazon saying a new book came out, you might be interested in it. If it's useful, that's actually a good thing. And certainly it makes businesses more efficient. Um, and that's a good thing if you're a stockholder or if you interact with those businesses. A lot of people get junk mail, but at least you know, the companies that send out these larger catalogs, which are more expensive to send out, they use data mining to determine who would best be served by these catalogs. So perhaps you're getting a little less junk than you would otherwise if people just randomly sent out these things. Um, as far as why you should or shouldn't worry, well, it depends on your perspective. Some people like to worry, some people don't. Um, some people trust companies and some don't. Um, but probably the truth is somewhere in between. We should be concerned. We should be aware. We should follow what's happening. And we should try and restrict the most sensitive data that we have and not give it out casually. To some degree, it doesn't make sense to be so concerned, but yet put some of your most personal data publicly available where almost anyone could see it. So if you think about the social networking sites, you know, many students or many young people put highly personal data there. And, you know, the, the protections there are very minimal. 
And I was at a conference this past summer at Fordham, which was sponsored by the Computer and Information Science Department and the FBI. And, you know, one of the speakers just casually mentioned how easy it is to become anyone's friend on Facebook. Um, if you get a request from someone who you haven't seen in 20 years, um, some people will accept it and some people will not, but many people will. Do you know that's actually your friend? So all someone really needs to do is come up with an old acquaintance, an old friend, which they may be able to get from one of your publicly accessible web pages, and all of a sudden they have access to everything that you have on Facebook. And from there they can get more information um, and probably become friends of your friends. So people should be aware of what they put on social networking sites and other web pages. You know, periodically I teach a course where students design and put up web pages. And you wouldn't believe what some students put up. I mean, they put up their phone number, their addresses, things like that, that anyone could get access to. So certainly we should be aware of what information we put out there um, as well. When you say our most sensitive information, what do you mean? Well, I was talking about phone numbers, addresses, things like that, so someone could actually find you and track you down. Um, you probably don't want to put that casually. Most people hopefully know not to put their social security numbers um, online, but again, if you put pictures of yourselves, maybe you don't want that. If you put pictures of yourselves in maybe not 100% clothed, I mean, I'm not talking about naked or something like that, but students will put up relatively provocative pictures occasionally. Um, these are things that are probably not appropriate. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons, including the fact that there may be bad people out there, but your future employers at this point seem to Google many of their future employees and, and see what's what information they can get. So when we talk about data mining, we're talking about something even as basic as just, you know, Googling someone. Right. I mean, technically, if you do a web search, that's information retrieval, which is very similar to data mining. Um, but it's basically the same idea. And certainly um, data mining techniques do help improve results for, for web searches. So, right, web searching is, in a sense, a form of data mining. And basically any data that's out there you need to be careful of. Okay, well, I guess that's kind of the way that we live now. Um, Gary Weiss is an assistant professor of computer and information science at Fordham. Gary, thanks so much for coming in. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, a sensational tale from New York's past. That's ahead at 7.30. First, though, if you're like me, when you first meet a new person and you're trying to figure out more about them, the first thing you do is Google them. By Googling someone, you can find out all sorts of things about them, not just about jobs or whatever that they've had in the past, but also about things they've done in the past, possibly really humiliating things. Fact is that the much-vaunted free flow of information that exists on the Internet may actually make us prisoners of our pasts, sticking us with reputations that we no longer deserve or maybe never did deserve in the first place. We'll close the show today with a conversation about how the internet might be talking bad about you with Daniel Solov. Solov is an associate professor at George Washington University Law School, and he's the author of the book The Future of Reputation, Gossip, Rumor, and Privacy on the Internet. I began my conversation with Solov by asking him to describe to me one of the more interesting stories that he describes in the book. I heard about a case in Korea where a young woman was on a train with a small dog. The dog poops on the train, and uh, she doesn't pick it up. 
And so naturally, people thought this was quite rude. One of them thought, let's take matters into our own hands. They snapped a picture of her with their cell phone camera, posted it online, and then people started figuring out who she was. They found out her identifying information. All across Korea, people start piling on with criticisms about her, threats. People start contacting her and calling her and her relatives and making threats and, and harassment. And basically, the idea was, let's shame her online. And I thought, you know, what she did was very rude and very inappropriate, but the response struck me as very alarming. So what are the sort of competing ideas at work here? What the idea that some people don't deserve privacy and they should be shamed publicly, but then also the idea that, you know, maybe you would rather that didn't happen to you? I'm not in favor of public shaming. I tend to think that the old way of shaming, which was someone did something rude, someone would tell them off, or people would give them angry glares. But otherwise, a lot of this stuff would just pass away over time. And the problem with the Internet is it changes things. It takes something that used to be rather ephemeral, fleeting, forgettable, and transforms it into something that's permanent. And in particular, what's troubling is that you can go anywhere in the world and someone could still Google you and find out information about you. And that, I think, is troubling because it's sort of permanently affixing people's prior baggage to them. And what's lost is that people no longer have a second chance. Your book is called The Future of Reputation. What does reputation even mean at this point in time? Well, reputation is a society's assessment of a person. It's the way other people judge you and the way they decide whether or not they want to befriend you, whether or not they want to trust you, whether or not they might want to hire you or give you a loan or just anyway, just even uh, converse with you. And this is an essential to us all. You can't really live in a society without a reputation. And what shapes people's attitudes about each other is information. And so there's a bit of a tension because obviously we want to have information about other people. We want to know information about them. On the other hand, um, we want to give people a chance to have some ability to control their reputation. And that's because we have short attention spans and we also have a tendency to condemn before we really understand what's going on. So, you know, you, you meet uh, a stranger, you Google them, you find out a uh, bunch of really, like, nasty things that they might have done in their past. And you might say, you know what, I don't have time to really figure out what's true and false and find out the whole story behind this. Did this person change? Didn't that person change? I'll just move on. What are some of the stories that you talk about in this book that illustrate your points? Uh, well, there's a number of uh, anecdotes. I think there's at least about uh, 30 or more stories in the book. One involves a uh, office romance in a senator's office that uh, went awry when the woman started blogging about their sexual life. And this eventually got out and created a big media frenzy. There, there's another one involving a college student who wanted to get a... Uh, 
job on Wall Street. And so he sent a very odd video resume to them, which basically was a kind of arrogant video describing all these physical feats that he could do. It was kind of totally irrelevant for the job. Someone at the place he applied to leaked the video online, and he became an utter laughingstock. There's instances of false rumors about people that spread like wildfire. Back a few years ago, there was the uh, Kobe Bryant rape case. And in that case, there was another woman who had nothing to do with this case, but she was identified as the victim and misidentified as the victim. And people started making all sorts of horrible comments to her, even after they sorted it out and said, look, she's not the person. She still got you know, attacks and other things. Uh, another case involves a man who, after the Oklahoma City bombing, this happened many, many years ago, some guy took this guy's personal information and then made a mock ad saying that this guy was selling T-shirts making fun of the Oklahoma City bombing. Naturally, this got people furious and enraged. And so this person started getting death threats, and he had to have police protection, and he started getting harassing calls, uh, and he tried to get this information off. And uh, it took a very long time for him to actually get the information off and to, to clear his name from this. So this is just a few of the examples. There, there's plenty more of, of this happening. I think this is uh, happening with greater frequency given the, the fact that we have uh, millions upon millions of people blogging, and the numbers on using social network websites are staggering. This is just a harbinger of things to come. So in your estimation as an attorney, what is the problem here? Well, I think the problem is that the... Internet changes the nature of gossip and shaming it, and rumor, and it changes it from something that was forgettable and relatively harmless. I mean, gossip always harm, it's harmful, even you know, nasty rumors in, in, in high school and college and wherever they, they might spread can harm people, but, but over time the, the damage you know, disappears as people forget things, as people move on in their lives. But the problem here is now you have some chance for some real permanent damage. So what do you think should be done? Well, that's a really tough question, and I spend a a little bit of of the book in the second part talking about how we should uh, go about fixing this. One of the problems is that, unlike some problems where you can quickly identify a kind of a bad side and a good side, this is tricky because, you know, you've pushed too far in one direction and it's bad. Too much protection of free speech and we have damage to privacy. On the other hand, if we push too far in the other direction, we start to chill speech. So it's got to be a very delicate balance. And I don't think that the law currently does a good balance. I explain in the book a little bit how the law overprotects free speech in a lot of cases to the point where it's establishing a norm online, which is say whatever you want, no matter what the consequences, no matter if it hurts somebody or not. And I think that the message should be something different that the law sends, which is 
you have to be responsible in what you write about other people online. This is something you need to do responsibly. You need to be aware of the consequences. One of the things that new technology is creating is that it's creating an unprecedented ability to capture information about us in public. Everyone now has a cell phone camera. There are surveillance cameras and other cameras everywhere we go. It's very easy to capture information and images about people as they're going about their daily lives, much more than in the past where people could basically go about their lives pretty anonymously and not expect to have information about them captured and disseminated online, uh, but no longer. And I think this is just going to increase, especially as technology improves. Today, it's everyone has their own cell phone camera. They're part of the phones. Tomorrow, it might be everyone has their own video camera. Soon, there might be people walking around filming everything that they see and do, broadcasting it to the Internet in a live stream. I mean, that's a possibility in the future, and it's not far-fetched. I think the technology is changing what happens when we're in the public sphere. And so I think we need to have a better understanding of privacy even when we're in public. When we're in a restaurant and we're talking to another person, we're in public, but that doesn't mean that we expect people to listen to our conversation, to record our conversation, to broadcast our conversation. And so I think we need to start thinking about privacy differently. It's not just about concealing things. It's about protecting the way that information flows, the way that information uh, is exposed, and, and, and giving people more control over how their information and their image is used and disseminated. Daniel Solov's book is The Future of Reputation, Gossip, Rumor, and Privacy on the Internet from Yale University Press. His blog can be found at concurringopinions.com. Dan Solov, thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, and as always, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.